Welcome back to this episode of the Bible Brush Up Podcast. Today, we are continuing our journey through the book of Numbers, and you thought you were out of the weeds, but it seems not so. When you get into the book of Numbers, you begin to rehash some of the same material that you trudged through in the book of Leviticus. We are back into some of the Levitical priesthood uh, ceremonial laws and some of the requirements for the priesthood, and a lot of this probably starts to sound repetitive to you as you go through it, but keep going. Um, there's some excitement around the corner, and if you bear in and pay close attention, some of these details actually are quite significant for uh, interpreting Scripture now and later. Um, some of these things carry over and have significance in the New Testament as it refers back to them. And so knowing what's in this Old Testament uh, record is crucial to your New Testament understanding. But we're going to start somewhere around chapter 7 of Numbers and discuss a few of the details as we move through about chapter 11 over the last several days. And the first thing it's talking about in chapter 7 is the completion of the tabernacle. Moses, up on Mount Sinai, received instructions on how to construct the tabernacle, and he brought those instructions back to the people, and after several uh, months of work and melting down these precious metals like gold and silver. Uh, they've been constructing the various pieces of the tabernacle. They've been making the different ornaments uh, for the priestly uniforms that are to be worn. And all of those details that were read in the book of Leviticus and some of that back in the book of Exodus are now finally coming to fruition. And this project is reaching completion. You have to imagine that after a year or so's worth of work, these people are ready to celebrate the new construction. It'd be like if we were building a new church and after years of watching it be erected, it finally reached conclusion, we would celebrate. And that's what happens in chapter 7. And the response is amazing. God did not require them to bring anything. There's no at least recorded instruction for them to bring certain offerings, but it's their first opportunity to bring offerings to the priests at the newly constructed tabernacle. And so we get this long record, a repetitive record, of each head of each tribe of the 12 tribes bringing sacrifices before the Lord. And as you read through them, you might have started to feel like it was a broken record because every single sacrifice brought was identical to the one before it. You have the exact same weighted silver plate. You have the exact same uh, numerical amount attached to the shekels. You have the exact same number of bulls and rams and so on and so forth. It's all identical. Each tribe has a picture-perfect match to the previous tribe who made an offering, and they come sequentially in order day by day. And one of the things I think we should see and just sort of think about as we reflect over this mirror image dedication offering that is brought is that the people are living in harmony at this point. Uh, no one's trying to get the upper hand on the other. No one's trying to one-up somebody and say, we did better than you, or we're a bigger nation than you. We've had more children. But it seems there's harmony among the various tribes, and they are uniting around a common cause, a common purpose, and that's to worship God and to honor God and to uh, uphold the values and the principles that were laid out for them on Sinai. 
And uh, this isn't always going to be the case. As you go through the Old Testament, you're going to find that these various nations begin to turn on one another. In fact, there's some conflict even before they get settled in the Promised Land. And as they finish fighting some of the battles in the Promised Land, there's almost a civil war that breaks out. And if those of you that have read ahead in the narrative and have studied Scripture for a while, you know that eventually we do get into uh, some civil war where one tribe turns against another tribe, and um, and we eventually have a splitting of the kingdom where we have a northern uh, country called Israel and the southern country that is referred to as Judah. Um, but for now, in this moment that you're reading through, you can see that there is unity and some solidarity and that is to be appreciated. Um, but as you move forward through the book of Numbers, the next thing you start to see is how this tabernacle, some of the furnishings within it, and some of it's not recorded here. It's been recorded in other places, but it's worth talking about what you would envision if you walked into the tabernacle. Now just picture that there's a courtyard. It's like a giant fence that uh, surrounds a plot of dirt. And there was one entrance into this courtyard, and it's at the gate. And so you would go to the gate, which was usually going to be facing east, especially when it is established in a permanent residence uh, in the temple and so on and so forth. You would go in to the gate on the east, and you would enter in. I think this reflects very much the Garden of Eden as the exit point for those who were kicked out of the Garden of Eden were in the east. They were sent away to the east. So we get this picture that to enter into this is similar to entering into Eden. And obviously the priests were the only ones who would be entering in. They would be taking sacrifices into the courtyard. And inside the courtyard, you would first encounter the altar. And this is where many of the burnt offerings, many of the sacrifices were burnt up. This altar had four horns on the corners of it, and often the blood was being smeared on these four corners. And this is where a lot of the sacrifices took place. But if you went behind that altar, you would encounter a laver. It was a big bronze basin that held water, and the priests would wash so any of the ceremonial washing that was required of them, that's where they would wash up. And you can imagine if you were sacrificing animals all day, you would need some washing. It's a bloody enterprise. Um, but these two things had to happen before a priest could ever enter into uh, the next portion of the tabernacle. Um, the next placement in the tabernacle is a small tent inside of this courtyard. And this is why they refer to the tabernacle as the tent of meeting, because it is inside of this courtyard where there's this small tent is set up. And this tent is divided into two rooms. The first room that you would enter into is called the holy place. And inside the holy place, there were three pieces of furnishing. And um, the on the right side, if you walked in on the right side, you would see a small table that had pieces of unleavened bread stacked one on top of one another, and this was called the showbread. And this bread was baked and set out. Uh, it was representative of the nations, and it was to be consumed only by the priests after a certain period of time, and they would replace it. When it was time, they would bake new bread, and they would put the new bread on that table, and they would eat the old bread. Um, straight in front of you, 
So that was to the right. But straight in front of you was a giant curtain. And it was called the veil. And it had a cherubim stitched into it as a reminder that you were not to enter. Because that veil was separating you from the second room. And we'll talk about that briefly. But um, the before that veil, in front of it was a, another altar that the priests, once they had made their sacrifice and washed up in the laver, they could go in and the ones that were appointed for this task could burn incense on this altar. This was not an altar where you were um, burning up sheep or goats. This was an incense altar. So certain uh, people within the Levitical priesthood could bring in this offering and smoke would fill this room. Um, because this is an enclosed tent. Just imagine burning incense inside of an enclosed tent. And it was pretty thick, um, the, the layers of this tent. It wasn't like the little tents you buy at Walmart and you go out camping and they're made of the, the thinnest mesh where water could seep through. And um, this is several layers of goat hair and badger hair and other uh, skins that have been used to construct this tabernacle. And so you have this altar for burning incense, and the smoke that goes up represents um, the intercessory prayer that is offered up on behalf of the priesthood for the people of Israel. On your left, just across the room from the showbread, would be the lampstand. And the lampstand is very important because without the lampstand, you would not be able to see. You'd be inside of a tent full of smoke, and there would be no visibility. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have flashlights. They didn't have an iPhone to turn on the little flashlight app. But they had to use these burning cups of oil that were placed on top of the seven arms of the lampstand. And this was all made out of one pure block of gold. And the lampstand is symbolic here in Numbers 8. We see Moses talking to Aaron about the lampstand. He's to keep this burning. And this continuous burning of the lampstand is uh, very important to uh, keep your mind wrapped around as you go through the Old Testament. Because there becomes a point where the fire goes out. And if you don't understand the significance of the fire burning, then when the fire goes out, you don't really pick up on that. You don't understand how wicked the people have become for letting the fire go out. But this fire was to continuously burn as long as the tabernacle was standing. And obviously they'd put out the fire when they were packing up and moving on, which would happen any time that the cloud that covered the tabernacle uh, moved. They were to pack up and they were to move with the cloud. God was going to direct them where to go. But whenever the tabernacle was standing, this lampstand needed to be burning. And it was a reminder, I believe, of two things. It pointed them back to Eden, because in the Garden of Eden you had the Tree of Life, and the Tree of Life uh, was the tree that represented life and light and wisdom. And that tree is symbolized by the almond blossoms that are um, hammered into the design of the lampstand um, because it bears fruit, just like the tree of life would have borne fruit. But I think also we have another imagery that is seen in the lampstand, and it's the burning bush. Because in the burning bush, we have a, a piece of vegetation that burns continuously. And if you recall, it would burn and burn and burn, but the, the bush was never consumed. 
And so this lampstand represents God's presence because the fire is continuously burning and it's burning up oil and oil is often a symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence as well. And so we have the, the divine presence through the Spirit that continuously burns and is never consumed, the, uh, the gold at least, the lampstand is never consumed. And so as long as there's oil in there to continuously burn, it will burn on forever. And I believe that imagery is significant as you reflect on what it meant to encounter God's presence. Just as Moses encountered the burning bush and was told to take off his sandals because he was on holy ground, when you entered into the tabernacle, you also were standing on holy ground because God's presence was immediately behind that veil. And behind that veil, of course, is where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. It was a, a box that had two cherubim seated on it, and that is where God's presence dwelt. And no one could enter in there except on the Day of Atonement, which we covered in a previous episode. So I won't um, do that again, but you could go back and listen to how the high priest would come in and make atonement for the people of Israel there. So this is what's going on in 7 and 8 and some of the surrounding chapters. Uh, and then he gets into the Levites, and he discusses uh, in Numbers 8 and 9 what the Levitical requirements are and what exactly a Levite is to God. And God tells the people of Israel through Moses that because God spared the firstborn of the Israelites in Egypt when the angel of death came, when they had observed Passover and when they had put the blood on the doorpost, because their firstborn sons were spared, God was requiring them to be his, the firstborns of Israel, were to be his because he spared their lives. And he says that the Levites are going to represent the firstborn. So he is taking them as the firstborns. And so the Levites become God's chosen people, and they are to serve him, and they are to work for him, which comes with a, a significant amount of sacrifice, considering that the Levites don't get land, they don't have their own cattle, they don't have their own gardens, and they are very much dependent upon the agricultural success of their brothers and their clans. And and so this is a reminder to us, in a way, because as New Testament Christians, we are called to be God's priests. Um, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that we are a holy priesthood. And we have assumed the role of priests. Every believer is a priest in the work of God. And because of that, we let go of a lot of things. There are sacrifices that have to be made in order to follow God and to serve Him. We're not called to cling to this world and to build our own little kingdoms and empires, but rather to serve God and to sacrifice uh, for the growth of the kingdom. We are to mediate the presence of God to the world around us at all cost. And this is a very high and lofty calling, but we too would consider ourselves firstborns of the Most High God. We are His, and we are set apart for something sacred. Um, in this same passage, there is a discussion of the Nazarite vow where people consecrate themselves. They, they make a sacrifice on behalf of God to get closer to Him and to serve Him um, purely and uh, ceremonially. 
And that's something that we as Christians are called to do. We don't necessarily follow the Nazarite routines and practices uh, to a T, but the fact that they are stepping away from the social norms to serve God in a more consecrated way, that is something that every Christian is called to do. We are to be holy as he is holy, is what First Peter tells us. And we need to live up to that calling. And so it looks a little bit different than it did in the Old Testament, but the principle applies to us now. We are to be a different, peculiar uh, type of people when compared to those living in the world. Now, all of this marks the one-year anniversary since they have left Egypt. They've been in the wilderness a year, and during that time, they received the Ten Commandments, they received the instruction, they build the tabernacle, and now it's time to celebrate Passover again. And I believe that's recorded here so we can get a reference point of time and so that we can see that the people of Israel are actually following through with the commitment. God was making them into a unique people by giving them their own celebrations of their own shared history, and that's what binds them together as one group of people. Unfortunately, their consecration and their holiness, their unity together doesn't last long because by chapter 11, there is an episode where they are grumbling and complaining about their dietary options. They are mad that they don't have the fish that they had in Egypt. They're mad that they don't have the dates and the leeks and other vegetation that was available to them in Egypt. And so they cry out against God and compare um, their current situation to their previous situation. And it seems that they would rather go back. And so God brings them meat to eat. And you've got to be careful what you pray for and what you wish for because this meat ends up plaguing the people and many end up dying. And because of that, the place is called the grave of craving. Much like Adam and Eve, after they partook of forbidden food, they entered into a, a time of dying. Death was the consequence for disobedience against God. And to the same extent, when we disobey against God, we are grasping on to death rather than to life. But we thank Jesus Christ that he died in our place and he took care of those sins so that we could come out of the grave of craving and that we could walk in newness of life as we die to ourselves and as we live for him in the life that the spirit has made available to us we're gonna stop there for today but we will pick up next time on the bible brush up podcast <laughs>